I V M. On this episode of Paisa Paisa, I start a three-part series on asset allocation. My guest is Radhika Gupta, CEO of Edelweiss Asset Management, and in this first episode, we are going to talk about an introduction and the basics of asset allocation. And believe me, my guest Radhika is a really fascinating person. Stay tuned for that first episode. Folks, welcome to Paisa Paisa. I'm your host Anupam Gupta, B50 on Twitter. I'm really, 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 really thrilled with today's topic and today's guest. First, the topic: asset allocation. Okay, <laughs> I know this sounds like a dull and very dreary thing that you keep hearing over and over again from your advisor or when you're reading anything about uh, investments. But guess what? It's really, it's actually really important because if you get your asset allocation right. Your portfolio actually has a potential to do better than others. So, in case you don't know what's asset allocation, it's how you divide your investments and your money across different asset classes. Uh, uh, could be mutual funds, gold, real estate, whatever. Okay, so that's asset allocation in a sentence. So, in this series, uh, we are going to talk about asset allocation and our guest. Okay, which brings me to the second thing that I'm thrilled about. Our guest, Radhika Gupta, CEO of Edelweiss Asset Management. Radhika, I can tell you, is unique in more ways than one. Okay, and if you want to know more about this, more about her, I really, really urge you to check out this video on YouTube. It's called "The Girl with the Broken Neck." Okay, check it out. The fantastic, I think, ten fifteen minute talk uh, about her, her entire story because she has such a fascinating background. Okay, Mackenzie alumni almost didn't get that dream job. Wharton graduate, ran a restaurant also, by the way, and she left Wall Street. Came to India during the financial crisis 2008-2009, set up her own fund, which she eventually sold to Edelweiss. So, Radhika, welcome to Pesa Pesa. Thank you so much for doing this show. Let's start with that YouTube video. Okay, I want you to summarize that entire story to our listeners. It is so totally fascinating. Tell us. So, firstly, thank you for having me here. Uh, I'm very excited to be here, summarizing that story. So, I think it's essentially a life story, and it's not just my story. I think it's everyone's story. It's a story of living in different countries because I'm the daughter of a diplomat. Five countries, four continents, and going through all the madness that each of these countries has to offer, and just kind of taking life by the side. And the fact that at the end, you know, the universe kind of conspires to make life work. You're a big work. believer in that. I really am. I yeah. really think. I mean, there was this Shah Rukh Khan dialogue about Sari Kayanath, etc. But I really think that the universe conspires to make you succeed. So, I don't know the benefit of being born in Pakistan with a broken neck mm. or living in Nigeria and playing bridge. But when it came to getting a dream job, you know, somewhere that played out really well for me. And What are the odds? You're standing yeah. in the lift with a McKenzie partner, and you're going, and the entire interview, you said, eighty-five out of ninety minutes is about playing bridge. My God! Now, when I was learning to play bridge at thirteen, no one would have predicted that. Um, and I think more importantly, it's just about the importance of uniqueness, right? I mean, the whole you know life, you're kind of conditioned be this, be that. But just be yourself, and it'll work out. I think people will like you for who you are and what you do, and your own experiences. Two questions, okay? First, what is the thought process 
for shifting from Wall Street to India. Okay, mm-hmm. this was what 2008, 2009, probably 2009 at the peak or the bottom uh, of the global financial crisis. And you just said, "I'm done." I mean, what was the thought process of coming back to India at that point of time? Okay, so when I decided to come back to India, everybody thought I was foolish. Um, I had just survived layoffs on Wall Street, which is a big deal for a middle class girl who's kind of gone there. And my parents, you know, were like, why would you ever do this? You've just survived better dollar salary here, you know, that whole dollar salary thing. And I just wanted to come back and start a business. I mean, I was 25 when I started Forefront, maybe not even 25. And I said, let's take some chances. If it doesn't work out, I'll go back to business school. So actually, there wasn't that much thought. It was just an ambition. Uh, to, I went to a business school. I wanted to start a business. And Oh, business school. You're from Wharton. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I went to Wharton. Okay. And I wanted to start a business. And you know, there's a great line that says, stay hungry, stay foolish. foolish. I think young people are hungry and foolish. Yeah. I was. So then you came to Bombay. Yes. And what was the story behind Forefront? I remember that uh, somewhere in the interview or somewhere you had said that you're, you know, you're from Wharton, you're coming to Bombay, uh-huh. people will line up for money to give you money. So it was, you know, and can you tell us the story? Oh, yeah. You know, so you come back from Wharton having worked in a fancy hedge fund with McKinsey on your credentials and you think you're going to go to high net worth clients and they're going to be like, here, Radhika, take all my money. And most of them look at you with a high degree of suspicion. I'd actually never even lived in India or worked in India. So I think entrepreneurship knocks a lot of arrogance out of your head. Uh, It certainly did out of mine. It also teaches you a lot about how to build a business in India. It teaches you a lot about how to talk to customers, understand what they want. And we built the business from scratch. uh, 25 lakhs, one at a time. We started with 25 lakhs. It took us a year to get two crores of assets. And then from there? 2 to 20, 20 to 200, which right. is when we sold to Edelweiss. And now Edelweiss is a 20,000 crore asset management business. That's what you're sitting on. That's that's, <laughs> that's asset management at Edelweiss. Right? Yes. Great. Now let's get right into our topic. Okay. Radhika, what exactly is asset allocation? Why is it important? Okay. And I know that there's a simplicity part to it that you also spoke about. And there's some data, right, which you've, which, which you've quoted, which says that 90% of your returns can mm-hmm. actually come from asset allocation. Okay, let's take this step by step. Let's start with asset allocation at a basic level. Why is it important? So, let me tell you a little story because this asset allocation word is a slightly dry word and it sounds like a very technical word that you know you hear from financial advisors. Asset allocation is where you take 100 rupees of your wealth and allocate it. And there are so many options in the market today. There's fixed income, there's equities within equities, there's large cap, there's mid cap. It's how you allocate it. And so much amount of money is allocating sensibly. So I'm just going to hark back to my US days. When I started earning in 2005, times were really good. Um, And I decided to put all my bonuses from Wall Street 100% into equities. Mm. Full risk. Full risk without realizing what I was doing. I was 22, 23. And it was great in 2006 and 7. And then 2008 happened. And we all know what happened. So my equity portfolios were down 50, 60%. And then I had to come back to start Forefront in 2009. And I actually needed capital. Ouch. And so it was a very, very nasty kind of experience. My husband also works in financial services. So I can't afford to take that kind of risk. Had I done some sensible asset allocation then, put some money in fixed income, put some money in equities, 
2009 wouldn't have been as difficult. So asset allocation is about where you put your money uh, across the different buckets that you have. Okay. And how much of return? I think, uh, do you have some data on that? At what part of your portfolio? Let's mm-hmm. say that, you know, you have a portfolio over whatever period and it's invested in whichever way that you want. So, and obviously after that period, you have a certain rate of return. Let's yeah. say if I'm 100% equity, I have XYZ return. If I'm 100% fixed income or 50-50, whatever it is, I have certain return. So at the end of this period, okay, how do I as an investor know how much of the return is because I'm fantastic. I'm such a great guy. I'm intelligent and I, 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 uh, I chose the right stocks. I chose the right mutual funds. And how much is just because of your asset allocation? So I'm glad you asked me this. I think we're obsessed with choosing stocks and picking the right multi-bagger because it sounds tremendously sexy. Actually, if you look at global studies, 100 out of 100, 90% of your return comes from correct asset allocation. Wow. This is actually very intuitive. In 2008, if you were more invested in fixed income, which was up 7-8% in India, and less invested in equities, which was down 50%, that would have been a much bigger deal than with stocks you were invested in because the index fell 50%. Some stocks may have fallen 40, 20, 30, but the fact is they were down. So intuitively, it makes a lot of sense that 90% of your returns come from being allocated to the right asset class. Another 5-7% come from choosing funds and a few percent come from choosing stocks. Just a tiny few percent, which is where we spend 90% of our time. Isn't that true? I mean, at the end of 2017, everybody and his aunt, cats and dog would have wanted to be in equity. What a fantastic year. And mid-cap equities. Mid-cap equities, 30-40% up. Uh, The world couldn't go wrong. How can you go wrong if you're choosing these uh, small and mid-caps because the economy was turning, everything was supposed to be good and look what happened, right? 2018 has been a rough year, it's been a rough year across the board. Uh, I was reading, I think in the Wall Street Journal somewhere, fixed income has had a rough year, equities has had a rough year, oil of all the things has had a rough year, crypto has been (laughs) wiped out. I think the only one that survived is probably gold. Maybe. Maybe, right? Or probably relative to the others, it's... So, you know... What do new investors do when 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 I'm coming in now uh, and you as a seasoned investor, you're someone who's already uh, in 2008 who already knows so much about the markets. If you could get this wrong, what are the two or three basic fundamentals that listeners who are just maybe starting off their career need to know about asset allocation? Okay. So I, you know, I love the example you gave of so many asset classes and you just look at 2017. If there are five, six asset classes that you have, you know, you've got gold, you've got debt, you've got large caps, you've got mid caps, you've got international equities. Every year do a rank. The best performing and worst performing asset class changes every single year. Every single year? Every single year. You take rank one. So in 2007, what was the best performing asset class? It was probably mid-cap equities in India. In 2008, it was gold. My God. You do this in 2011, from an Indian investor's point of view, it was international equities. So the first thing a listener should do is to realize that they can't predict which is the best performing asset class. I can't, you can't, the best can't. Isn't that a humble lesson? All of us have to learn? Yeah. I mean, I mean you can't predict. Yeah. I mean, you can't predict anything. I mean, yeah. you can't predict the last three days of market. So predicting asset classes is very difficult. And so if you can't predict, the second thing to do is diversify. 
and that is asset allocation holding some of each so that you have staying power see we talk about and my industry does this too we talk about long term inequities but the fact is when you have a 50% correction you as a new investor you get what it yeah, yeah. i mean it happens by having other asset classes you have protection and insulation so one don't try to predict and two diversify what if i look at this as uh you know an angle of a target rate of return i think any good financial planner mm-hmm. if he's going to sit to this client or even say if i do this i'm going to sit in an excel file and say this is my income this is my expense this is my savings and over a long term this is the kind of rate of return that i want the problem that i find is that i become greedy okay how does one handle human emotions in financial planning seriously i i have no idea about this i used to think like you okay mm-hmm. back in the day when i was uh, working full time in the in industry that of course 100% equity of course 100% equity where how do we overcome this emotion how do we just stick to a certain track and say this is my rate of return one year i made 50% the other year i made this how does one rationalize it how do you deal with it say so i'll give you a little example you know i talk to very sophisticated global investors sometimes do you know what the expectation for the most sophisticated global investor in terms of return is it is actually inflation which is the rate at which you know expenses are growing plus 4% that is what the world's most sophisticated investor that's is. all they want that's all they and want and if you take an inflation of what 3% they have yeah, out there 3 yeah. 4% in the uk this is a uk based example so huh. they're very happy with 8 in india assuming 8% no no 8% rate of return i'm getting yes. an fdi at 8% yeah. right. so this is uk now you okay. take india right india your inflation in even worst of times is 7 odd percent sure. 6 7 odd percent you want to be a little more ambitious than the uk guy fine add 5% 10 to 12% if you earn on your portfolio on a post tax basis is a very good outcome and i suspect by the way that in all the jugglery we do if we actually did the math on our portfolios many of us would not be earning 10 to 12% not we would not we would be lower than that we would be lower than that God, even okay. though we're doing everything because we invest we try to time the asset we invest in mid caps at the end of 2017 right yeah. when it's run up <laughs> then we go through 2018 then we invest in fixed income and we don't invest in equities right now so we get our timing wrong and i doubt most guys will earn 10 to 12% you are right i looked at my own portfolio this morning all my sips okay i had one mid cap sip <laughs> that i started i don't know maybe 2014 15 16 or somewhere so i got a couple of years of the upturn and now of course i just have been a bad year 8% irr there okay. you go 8% irr exactly below 10 12% okay and this is not even for the last one year i'm talking over 3 to 5 year basis okay that's my first sip <laughs> the second sip i'm below cost i started it last year ंग you should feel very happy see my our God. primary job is not to manage money i mean yeah. even mine is not i you know i run an asset management business but i'm not obsessed with my personal money right mm. our primary job is to live our lives to do our jobs to grow our businesses to spend time with our family money should be peaceful yeah. 
not a lot of people get that people think that 24 hours just obsess about markets and sex nifty this and that but money is an outcome money needs to be on the background we've got lives to live like you said and with that we are at the end of the first of a three part series uh, on asset allocation guys so this was an intro to radhika's absolutely fascinating background and we covered the basics of asset allocation in the next part the actual process five step process of asset allocation stay tuned for that